The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this morning comes from Colossians 3, verses 1 through 11. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, real quick before we pray and then get into Colossians chapter 3. Uh, in two weeks from now, June 18th, we are going to be starting a new sermon series that we're going to be in for the entirety of the summer and then some all the way up until Labor Day, walking through the Apostles' Creed. And we'll talk more about this, but the Apostles' Creed is one of the core central confessions of our faith that the church has followed and believed for over 1,700 years. And so, so we, uh, in kind of to help resource us as a church family, have a few things for you that are free uh, that you're welcome to grab. Uh, both of them are by a guy named Ben Myers, who's a theologian, PhD, all that fun stuff from Australia. So as you're reading it, you can just think about his Australian accent. Uh, the first is called the Apostles' Creed, a guide to the ancient catechism. This is for every adult in the room. Uh, so one per adult. This is a short devotional based on the Apostles' Creed. So as we're preaching through the series, pick this up and it'll be really helpful just to kind of spur your heart towards the Lord as we think about these big areas of doctrine. And then for families in the room, he wrote an accompanying uh, children's book called The Apostles' Creed for All God's Children. This is one per family. Uh, you can pick these up in City Kids on your way out, and we would love for you to take this. It basically takes The Apostles' Creed and makes it accessible for children. And so I'd encourage you to pick that up as well as you're navigating how to disciple your kids through the core tenets of our faith and what we believe as Christians. So pick those up. They'll be available this week and next week and probably after that because just in case. Uh, all right, let me pray for us, and then we're going to just jump right into Colossians chapter 3. So let's take a minute to close our eyes, to, to quiet our hearts before the Lord, and to ask him to be with us. Lord, we love you. Before we get to asking you for things, before we get to pleading with you, for things, even good things. We want to ground our hearts in that reality that you love us. We love you in return. And so Lord, out of that love, out of that intimacy, out of that relationship, we do ask that you'd be present with us as you already are. You'd teach us, you'd guide us, you'd shape us. You'd convict us, you'd discipline us, rebuke us, encourage us, hold us. All through your word, which is what you do. It's living and it's active. And we want to 
bring our lives under its authority. We need your help to do that, Lord. So would you be with us this morning? Open our hearts, push away any doubts, push away any distractions, push away any fears, push away any excuses, Lord, that we might just hear from you for just a moment. We need you. We love you. For all these things in Christ's name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, we uh, are in a little bit of a gap in our sermon schedule. Uh, so if you're new, one of the things we like to do as a church is preach through uh, various kind of chunks of series. So sometimes those are topical series where we kind of overview what the Bible has to say about a particular thing. And sometimes we work through uh, courses of scripture like we did with Ecclesiastes over the past few months. But occasionally in our calendar, there are some gaps where we just get to pause for a week or two and specifically ask the Lord as a pastoral team, what do you have for our church family in this season. And so what we're going to do over the next two weeks, this week and next, is a short little mini-series from Colossians 3 talking about sanctification. And to put it very simply, this is the definition we're going to be using. Sanctification is the work of God over the course of our lives where he shapes us through our active participation to look more like Jesus. Let me say that again, give you a chance to write it down. Sanctification is the work of God over the course of our lives, where he shapes us through our active participation to look more like Jesus. So part of why we want to do this is because we just came out of not eight weeks or so on the ordinary mundanity of life. Finding God's presence and finding joy in the ordinary stuff that he has given us to do. And we're about to head into, for the whole summer, kind of a theology doctrine 101 of the Christian faith. And so we thought it'd be fitting and appropriate to just pause here and talk about living for Jesus. Holiness sanctification. What does it look like to look more like Jesus over the course of our lives? Which, if you are a follower of Christ in the room, I hope that is your heart's burning desire to look more like our Savior. In Colossians 3, what we're going to see is that encompasses two very specific actions. One of those actions, as we'll explore next week, is in the language of the passage, what we put on, what we start doing, that we would learn over time through intentional practice how to be more and more a people of love and peace and forgiveness and grace and thanksgiving and gratitude, just beautiful things. The first part of being sanctified, becoming more like Jesus, as we'll see today, is what we'll stop doing. What will no longer mark our lives as those who follow Christ. That there are things we must put off or put to death, according to Colossians 3. Stop living into. And so that's what I want to just spend a few minutes thinking about today. Here's where we're headed. It's a very simple outline we're going to follow this week and next. What, how, and why. Very simple. Specifically this week. What does the passage tell us to put to death? How do we put it to death? And then why do we put it to death? So note takers rejoice. These two sermons are for you. That was a joke. Thank you. (laughs) What do we put to death? How do we put it to death? Why do we put it to death? Who's excited? It's going to be great. All right, let's start in verse five. Let's talk very simply. What do we put to death? First question we got to answer. What, according to Colossians three, is we're being sanctified to look more like Jesus. What do we put to death? Verse five, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now, if you track through the New Testament, one of the contrasts you'll consistently see come up is the difference between what is heavenly and what is earthly. 
Now, what this is not talking about is physical things. So it's not like heavenly is clouds and angels and streets paved with gold and earthly is like food and plants and animals. That's not what it's talking about. What the Bible does when it contrasts those two terms, heaven and earth, is setting up what is of God and what is not of God. So what is heavenly is what is of God, his attributes, his characteristics, how we live into his design. And what is not of God is what is earthly, what still resides in our heart and life that is not of him. This is what we would more commonly in everyday language call sin. Sin, very simply, is this. It's how we think and love and live that is contrary to God's design. Sin, at its base level, is how we think, what our minds are occupied with, how we love, what our desires go after, and how we live, the actions and and rhythms of our lives, contrary to God's design. Now, to help us out with understanding what would fall into the earthly category, Paul's going to get specific. And he's going to give us a couple of lists, two lists in particular, in verse 5 and verse 8. And these are not all-encompassing. So it's not like, well, that doesn't fall in one of the two lists. That's not earthly. It's heavenly. He's just trying to paint in broad strokes what it is that we could just describe as sin. So let's look at these lists together. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. First, sexual immorality. This is any sexual activity you give your body or mind to that is not in God's design for sex between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. This is lust in your heart. It's fantasy. It's pornography. It's sexual desire for someone you're not married to. He continues on in the list. Impurity. So this is more than just sexual impurity. This is any moral corruption. So if you're shady with reporting your hours at work, if you're deceitful in a friendship, if you lie a little bit on your tax return, if you embellish the details of a story to get a laugh, that's impurity. He goes on, passion and evil desire. He's talking about impulses or compulsions that are out of step with God's design for our life. Those, those evil impulses within you that you just can't help yourself but do what you know is wrong. Then he ends this list with covetousness, which he says is idolatry. Covetousness or coveting is an unhealthy desire of what someone else has. And idolatry is worshiping something or someone other than God. So when you put these two together, this means believing at your core, God is withholding from you something you deserve and need that someone else has. I need that thing that they have. That is all encompassing for me. Skip down to verse eight. He's going to give us a few more. He says, but now you must put them all away. Anger in wrath. This is our lashing out at one another, our holding grudges, our, our holding in our hearts bitterness or frustration against one another. He continues the list, malice and slander, using our speech to, to bring harm to someone else by saying untrue and or hurtful things about them to others. Most We would usually call this gossip, right? Saying something untrue or unhelpful to someone else about someone else. And then lastly, he says obscene talk. This is less like four-letter cuss words and much more slander, but to the person. So rather than saying something hurtful to someone else about them, you just say it to their face. You use your words to tear down instead of building up. And all of these things are types of earthliness within us that Paul says to put to death. The first step in our sanctification is to put these things in our lives to death. We learn more and more to say no to the ways we think, love, and live contrary to the design and will of God. To say no to anger. 
to say no to slander, to say no to sexual immorality, to say no to malice and obscene talk and idolatry. We put them to death. I've had this picture in my mind uh, of Colossians 3 over the past few weeks uh, from something that happened in Lindsay and I's life. So a few weeks ago, Lindsay was driving home and she was pulling into our driveway with our three-year-old and our one-year-old in the back seat. And she noticed in our driveway a four-foot-long snake. And I kid you not when I tell you that I did not know that a Honda Odyssey could be such a snake-killing machine. So here's what she did. She guns it, runs over the snake, backs up, runs over it again. And in case that's not enough for good measure, a third time backs up and runs it over again. And I love that picture because I think it's a picture of how the Bible calls us to treat sin. But here's the follow-up to that story. So she thought she was like, I'm being a good neighbor. So she takes a picture of the crushed, destroyed snake, and she sends it into our neighborhood group chat. And she's like, hey guys, I know we all have little kids, like watch out, be careful, snakes are out, it's summertime, they're coming back into the neighborhood. And she thought she was like being helpful, like I'm a good neighbor. And instead she got back a bunch of texts like, hey, that's great, maybe just call us next time, we'll relocate it, we'll put it somewhere else in nature. So she's like, awesome. A few days later, she sees another black snake in our backyard. So she calls our neighbor, hey, snake, I'm not gonna run over with my car, can you come get it? And so he comes and gets it, and he puts it in this kind of Tupperware, and he's going to relocate it to some other place um, outside of the neighborhood. And so he's driving along, and in the, the path, as he's going towards where he's going to drop it off, the snake gets out. And he has a window cracked open in the back, and it actually slithers out of the car and gets away. And I think that's a really good picture of our bent towards sin, and instead what Colossians 3 tells us to do, because here's what we have to do, right? We hear this, okay, put to death what is earthly in you, and we think, oh, it's okay, I can just tame it. Oh, I don't, I don't need to kill sin, I can just kind of manage it. Like, I can just sort of get, kind of get my handle around, I can keep it like far enough away to not actively plague me, but like, I can just kind of keep it under control. And Paul says, no, when you see what is earthly in you, you run it over, you back up, you run it over again, you back up and you run it over again. Why? Because this is not a game. This is what's earthly, what is not of God within us. But now here's, here's the challenge, right? The challenge is if you're a follower of Jesus, I don't think I just told you anything new. Like, I don't think if you're actually trying to follow Christ that you're like, what? I'm supposed to say no to sin? Whoa, I love this new stuff I get at church. That's awesome. Because it's easier said than done, Right? The gap between what we know to do in our lives and actually following Jesus in our lived reality is the gap of the Christian life. And so we got to talk about it. How? How do we actually do this? If the what is put sin to death, if the what is crush it with a Honda Odyssey, then how? How do we actually put sin to death? Well, I think the passage gives us three really good starting steps. There's certainly much more you can do. I just want to keep us rooted in the passage. What does Paul tell us to do in terms of putting sin to death? Three things. Number one, agree with God that sin is sin and sin is serious. Agree with God that sin is sin and sin is serious. Sin is a big deal to God. Like it is no light and trivial thing when God's creation, you and me, do not live within God's design. The Bible is very clear about that right here in Colossians chapter 3. So Paul lists all of these various sins in verse 5, and then he follows it up with a warning in verse 6. And look at what he says. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. 
on account of these things that are earthly within you, on account of sexual morality and anger and impurity and passion and evil desire, the wrath of God is coming. Now, you might notice this is not on everyone's short list of favorite verses in the Bible. Right? It's not like John 3.16, for God so loved the world, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ, and oh, yeah, also I really like Colossians 3.6, on account of sin, the wrath of God is coming. Favorite verses tattooed on the arm, right? We don't do that, and here's, here's why I think that is. I think that's because one of the biggest and silliest lies that has ever happened in American Christianity, and it sounds something like this, God is a God of love, therefore he could never be angry with anyone. Like, if God is a God of love, right, that's what 1 John tells us, then there's no room for him to have any wrath. But here's what's important to understand. The greater the love, the greater the capacity for wrath. You have to get this. The greater the love, the greater the capacity for wrath. Let me give you an illustration. If you were to come over to my house with a baseball bat, and you were to start hitting my fence, I'd be weirded out and confused, but I wouldn't be like actively angry at you. I'd be like, that's kind of a bummer. I just put up some new boards, but whatever, it's fine. Kind of weird. If you were to start hitting our cars, I would be a little bit more upset. I really like that Honda Odyssey. I'd rather you not hit our car with a baseball bat. But if you start swinging at my kids, if you start swinging that baseball bat at my children, like we're fighting. We are, I don't know how to fight, but we're going to fight. We're going to figure it out. <laughs> and we're going to fight because love drives wrath. I love my wife and my kids so much. And that actually means I have a greater propensity towards wrath for those who would try to harm them. And there are two things the Bible is very clear God loves, his glory and his people. Two things God's heart beats for is his glory, his fame, his renown, him being made much of in the world and his people. And sin seeks to destroy both. Sin seeks to destroy God's glory because what happens is we look at God in all of his majesty and all of his wonder and all of his goodness and all of his kindness to us, all of his offering himself to us as living water that will never run dry. And we look at him and go, not good enough. I need this instead. That's an affront to his glory. But sin also seeks to destroy God's people. God loves his people and sin destroys his people. Here's what you have to understand about Colossians chapter three is that God is not telling us to kill sin because he is some cosmic killjoy. It's not like become a Christian, no more sex for you. (laughs) Ha ha, got him. It's not what's happening in the passage. God, as the author of all that is true and beautiful and good is not trying to keep us from joy, but rather lead us to a greater, truer joy. This is something we push a ton at citizens, that God's design for life is not simply right. It is also good. It leads us into a deeper life that is truly life. And sin, even if it seems delightful in the moment, actually leads to greater death and destruction. Because this is what this list is. It looks compelling, it looks delightful, and it all ends in destruction. Sexual immorality, though it might bring a temporary moment of pleasure, ultimately destroys the image of God. It turns people into objects to be used for our own gratification and pleasure instead of God's design and the beauty of giving yourself in covenant intimacy to another person. Malice and slander, though it feels good in the moment to get that laugh or to get the revenge or to think you're winning yourself into a group, actually crushes the very thing you were designed for and your soul craves deep community with others. So God says, I know what looks harmless, but it's not. It's a snake. Snakes are not friends. You don't play fetch with them. You kill them. Famous words of Puritan John Owen, be killing sin or it will be killing you. 
So here's why this matters, because if we're going to put sin to death, we have to learn to agree with God and call sin, sin, and take sin seriously. Because here's this how this works out into our lives. These things, Paul says, brings the wrath of God. We shrug our shoulders as, eh, no big deal, right? Like, eh, you know, passion, evil desire, being ruled by your emotions and your impulses, not being able to say no to yourself, just going after your whims. We're like, no big deal. It's just my Enneagram. Just like a four. I'm just an emotional person. No big deal. I know I shouldn't have laughed, but I'm just like, I'm emotional. I'm a four. That's how it works. Anger, wrath, slander, eh, no big deal. Like, they deserved it, right? Like, they really made me, I wouldn't have lashed out, but they really made me, doesn't the Bible say something about righteous anger somewhere? Like, maybe that's that. Maybe this is that. We justify or we shrug our shoulders. What God says is a big, grievous deal. What's happening underneath the surface is that we're convincing ourselves it's okay. And often what it sounds like in my own life and in pastoral meetings I'll have with people is something like, well, I think it's okay because I don't feel conviction over it. And in reality, that lack of conviction is a seared conscience towards the voice of the Holy Spirit. As he's trying to speak over us where we are off from God's design. And we've so crushed that voice in our lives, pushed it and shoved it down that we would think it's okay. I don't feel bad when really not feeling bad is actually maybe a worse indicator that we are worse off than we thought. And for what it's worth, this is just free. And this is the beauty of community. If you are in group and 20 other people in the room say, this is off. Just don't think you're smarter than everybody else. And so the first step in learning to put sin to death is just to agree with God. This is wrong. We agree in confession. We agree in repentance. This is sin. It's killing me. It's harming me. It's not okay in my life. Okay, that was the longer one. Let's do the next two a little quicker. Number two, how do we kill sin? Consistent, mundane spiritual practices over the long haul. Consistent, mundane spiritual practices over the long haul. Verse nine, do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. What Colossians 3 is telling us is that the old self had its practices. It had its ways of rhythms and routines and ways of being in the world, but that gets put off and the new self gets put on with new practices. And so part of how you fight sin and how you learn to put sin to death is not just through specific fighting of that sin. Part of how you fight sin is by holistic all of life practices that reshape your entire being. I described it to somebody in our church a few days ago in this way. Hopefully this is helpful. Uh, Have you ever tried to change the way your hair is parted? This is not a personal example. Have you (laughs) ever tried to change the way your hair is parted, right? If you go from like a right part to a left part or like to a center part, you know that takes time. And sometimes what happens is that we try to fight this specific sin. It's like taking one piece of hair and trying to just change that. And part of what we're invited in to do when we take on a new self with new practices is a holistic all of life turn towards the things of God. Because we are whole beings, right? We are all, all parts of us is created in the image of God, body, soul, and mind. And so we have to reshape our entire selves back into the way of Jesus. So let me give you a few examples. If you're trying to fight idolatry in your life, if you're trying to fight and put to death worshiping something or someone that is not God, making it central instead of him, you don't put that to death by simply trying to stop idolizing. You also commit to showing up faithfully to the gathering on Sundays. Because as you worship 
as you lift your hands, as you say amen, as you read liturgies, as you take communion, that helps reshape you as a whole person away from idolatry and towards the true worship of God. If you're trying to put gossip and slander to death in your life, man, I hate that I'm the kind of person who just, I don't even mean to, but when I'm in the group and they're making the jokes, I make the jokes too. I don't, even, I don't want to be that way. You don't just do that by trying to fight against gossip and slander. You do, but you also commit more deeply to community. Because as you commit to community, you're committing to be reshaped into a person who sacrifices and loves others before yourself. So spiritual practices, a holistic life of following Jesus is part of how we are reshaped as whole people to desire Jesus more, to have more of an appetite for the things of God, such that we would say no more and more to sin. So that's two, right? We agree with God, sin is sin, sin is serious. We seek a robust life of mundane, ordinary spiritual practices. Number three, we submit ourselves to Holy Spirit renewal. We submit ourselves to Holy Spirit renewal. Look at verse nine again. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Notice this language, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Notice the verb tense of verse 10, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Passive tense, right? Not active tense. So we, we have a role to play. Yes, absolutely. But what we're trying to do in spiritual practices, in saying no to sin, is put ourselves, in the words of one pastor, under the waterfall of God's grace. I'm trying to position my life such that Holy Spirit renewal can actually happen in myself and in my life. And I think part of how we do that is these mundane spiritual practices, but also I think part of how we do it is just taking an honest look at the everyday stuff of life with this framework. Does this help me be more in love with Jesus or not? It's just an overriding. If you're like, how do I navigate the gray of life? How do I navigate? Do I watch that television show or do I not? Do I go to that thing or do I not? Just asking holistically that question, does this help me be more in love with Jesus or not? Does TikTok help me or hurt me love Jesus more? Does that show I'm watching on Netflix help me or hurt me love Jesus more? Does the music I'm listening to help me or hurt me love Jesus more? Does the person I'm dating help me or hurt me love Jesus more? Do my sleep habits and my eating habits, because we're holistic people, we're embodied beings, help me love Jesus more or not? Is the stuff of my everyday life creating space for the Holy Spirit to renew me, or is it distracting and diminishing his work in my life? That's the question we learn to ask. All right, so that, what do we do? We put sin to death. How do we do it? Agree with God, it's sin and it's serious. Ordinary spiritual practices and creating space for Holy Spirit renewal. But then that leads to the most important part of the sermon. Why? Why do we put sin to death? Why do we put sin to death? Look back with me at verse 5. It's where we started today. There's a crucial word right in the middle of it. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Growing up, my pastor used to always say, if you want to be a good Bible reader, learn to ask, what is the therefore? Therefore. And it's cheesy, but it's very, very helpful. So what Paul is doing is he's grounding all of what follows verse five. Everything he just said about putting sin to death, killing sin, putting it off, he's grounding it in what he just told us in verses one through four. So what did he tell us in verses one through four? Let's look at it. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above 
where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Notice what Paul says, kill sin. Put to death what is earthly in you. Why? Because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So let's just break this down for a second. When you become a Christian, when you put your faith in Jesus, you participate, according to the scriptures, with Christ in his death and resurrection. So just as Christ died physically, you too, when you put your faith in him, die spiritually to what the Bible calls your old self. Your flesh, your sin nature dies. It's done away with. And just as Christ rose from the dead spiritually, physically, you too rise spiritually to what the Bible calls a new self, a new creation. This is seen most clearly in the symbol of baptism, right? So when we practice baptism, someone goes under the water as a symbol that they are participating in the death of Jesus, that they are dying to who they were before Christ. And when they come up out of the water, it's a symbol that they are participating with Christ in new life. And the implications of this, Paul is really clear about in Romans chapter 6. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So when you put your faith in Jesus, when you receive the free gift of salvation from God, part of what happens is that you become dead to sin. Sin has been put to death within you, meaning you are set free. You're set free from the penalty of sin. You are no longer under the guilt and condemnation. Do you because of your sin? You are set free from that. You are declared righteous in the sight of God, but you're also set free from the power of sin. Your old self has died, meaning you are not a slave. You are set free. You can say no to sin and choose holiness. In other words, why do you kill the action and attitude of sin in your life? Because Christ on the cross has already killed the penalty and power of sin in your life. Let me give you a really silly example of this. A few weeks ago, uh, Harper, our three-year-old, came home from preschool with every parent's worst nightmare, a craft with glitter on it. And she was so excited. She was running around. No amens here, parents? Cool. Uh, she was running around the house with this eight and a half by 11 sheet of just pure glitter. And you just watch and you're like, no, I hate your teacher so much. Uh, and she's running. She, she's a great teacher. But she's running around and she's like waving it. And you just know what's happening. It's like glitter attack in the house. And so we did what every good set of parents do is that we waited until she took a nap and then we threw it away and said it had to go bye bye. And so she, she, oops. Um, and so here's the deal. The, the glitter craft died, right? Like we put it in the trash. It's gone. It is no more. But what are we doing for weeks, if not months afterward, every time we sit on the couch in our playroom? We're picking up little pieces of glitter, right? They stick to your clothes. They stick to everything they get everywhere. And I think that's the image Paul is painting for us, that you have died what was earthly in you does not reign over you anymore. You are no longer a slave to your earthly passions and desires. You're in Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you put your faith in him, you are a new creation with a new heart and new desires and a new love, but there's still those pieces that are lingering behind. 
There's still those little parts of glitter, those ingrained habits and rhythms of life that must be dealt with. We still must work and labor empowered by the spirit to kill the pieces of sin and habits of sin that still remain. Why? Because that's not who we are anymore. And that's Paul's point. Look back at me in verse nine. He says, do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. I used to think verse 9 was Paul's kind of final tack onto the list. Like one more thing he just sort of wanted to add in. Like, all right, put to death anger, malice, and oh yeah, lying. But that's not actually what he's addressing here. He's addressing, when he says, do not lie to one another, the idea of false living. He says, put away all these things, kill your sin, because if you keep living into these things, as a follower of Jesus, you are lying to one another. You are living an identity that is not true, because if your faith is in Christ, you've died to what is earthly, and you've risen again with Christ. So stop lying by living a life that is incongruent with that. You have a deeper identity now. You're not a Greek anymore. You're not a Jew anymore. You're in Christ. You're a Christian. Kill sin because you're a Christian, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. I want to make sure we're grounded in this, that if you are a follower of Jesus, listen to me, your truest identity is not sinner. Right? So we show up to group, and this is how we posture ourselves. We confess our sin to one another. We try to follow the Bible, and we're like, yeah, guys, I did it again. I know. I'm a sinner. That's not actually true anymore in Christ Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are not a sinner. You are a saint who sins. And that is the key. That identity makes all the difference. That the Bible would declare over you as a follower of Jesus, not sinner, but saint. This is how Paul addresses every letter he writes to the churches. 1 Corinthians 1, you are saints by calling. Ephesians 1, you are saints who are in Christ Jesus. Jude 1, you've received the faith handed down to you, the saints. If you are in Christ, you're not a sinner. You're a saint who sins. Because the sinner has died with Christ. And you've been raised to newness of life. That's your new identity. So why do we kill sin? Because we're now saints, not sinners. And you got to hear me on this. This is what distinguishes legalism from discipline. Because it's so easy in 2023 in America to hear a strong call to put sin to death and call it legalism. That's legalism. That is, that, no, you're telling, um, no, no, hear me on this. This is what distinguishes legalism from discipline. Legalism, thinking you can earn your way to God. Legalism, thinking you could ever do good enough to make God love you. Thinking, legalism is thinking based on what I do dictates God's love for me or not. And hear me so clearly on this. That is anti-Bible and anti-Jesus. You can never earn your way to God. You can never be good enough. You cannot, if you are in Christ, if your faith is in him, you can never earn more of God's love for you. You have it in fullness in Christ. But there is a distinct difference between legalism and discipline. Colossians 3 isn't teaching legalism. It's teaching discipline. Because here's the key. If you hear nothing else, hear this. Saying no to sin doesn't make you a Christian. Being a Christian makes you say no to sin. And that's the whole key of Colossians 3. Being, saying no to sin doesn't make you a Christian. If you stand before God one day and he says, why should I let you in my kingdom? And you're like, well, I said no to this, this, and this. It doesn't matter. Saying no to sin doesn't make you right with God. Being made right with God through faith in Christ and his finished work on the cross makes you then say no to sin. 
Let me share a story and then, and then I'll close. I had a close friend in high school uh, that was a part of one of those families. You know what I'm talking about? Like they had a hashtag for their family. And if that's you, a little bit of shame. Um, <laughs> but they were just one of the, and it's one of those where like growing up, I thought it was so lame. Like I was like, man, like, your family is so tight. It's kind of weird. But now as Lindsay and I are, are, are growing a family of our own, I think there's something really sweet about it and something really precious about it. Specifically, how much he would let his family identity dictate his behavior. And so if you've ever called my friend and you tried to get him to, to, do, uh, to get into trouble, as you often do in high school, like we would call him and we'd be like, hey man, uh, do you want to prank call the nerdy kid from school? And he'd always have the same response. He's like, no nah, man, I'm a Peterson. We, we don't do that. Or if you were like, uh, hey man, you want to go TP that teacher's yard? He'd be like, sorry, I'm a, I'm a Peterson. Like we don't, we don't do that. Or you'd be like, hey man, you want to go mess with the workers at Walmart? Because we lived in a small town. That's what you did. Small town, South Carolina, right? Same response. Sorry, man, I'm, I'm a Peterson. We don't do that. That was his response to every time we tried to get this kid in trouble. The same response. Sorry, I'm a Peterson. We don't do that. This is who I am. This is the family I belong to. Therefore, I don't do these things anymore. That's Colossians chapter 3. I'm a Christian. Therefore, I say no to these things. I am a saint in Christ. Therefore, I say no to these things. And that is the only why that can actually ground any lasting sanctification over the course of your life. So this is how this looks. I'm a Christian. You want to offer sexual immorality to me? You want to offer internet pornography? You want to offer swipe left hookup culture? No thanks. I'm a Christian. I'm loved by the God of the universe who knows me deeply and calls me his own. You want to lure me with coveting, doubting the goodness of God and what he has given me? No thanks. I'm a Christian. I'm a child of the king with an eternal inheritance that is kept pure and undefiled for me with God forever. You want to tempt me to be burned up by anger and bitterness? No thanks. I'm a Christian. And the one who never sinned died for me and shows me daily undeserved grace. I can surely show that too. All right, soul, you feel drawn to slander and gossip? No thanks. I'm a Christian, and God speaks over me nothing but delight, so surely I can speak over others the same. And on and on and on we go. How do you fight sin? Why do you fight sin? Because you are a Christian, and so you go deeper into that reality with God, that you have been raised with Christ, therefore put to death what is earthly, and seek the things that are of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you in humility come before you in need, God. Well aware of all of the ways that we violate and break what Colossians 3 tells us to put to death. Well aware of your invitation to us to say no to sin and yes to you. Well aware of your charge and your command and your call on us to put sin to death set our minds and hearts on the things that are above and yet well aware of the gap between our desire for holiness and the lived reality of our holiness. So we come to you in desperate need, Lord, to do what only you can do. Lord, you promise in your word that you are the one who renews us. You are the one who sanctifies us. You are the one who brings us into holiness. You are the one who completes the work you have started of making us like your son. So Lord, I pray by the power of the Spirit, that you would give us the grace to live into our identity, 
in the days and weeks to come. That we would believe what you have spoken over us in Christ Jesus. That we are dead to sin and alive to you. That we are primary identity in Christ is not sinner but saint. Welcome in the throne room. That we were beggars turned sons and daughters. Lord, I pray against a spirit of legalism coming out of this message. Lord, I pray against anyone who would take this and want to twist it and turn it either towards legalism, thinking, okay, this means I got to do some right stuff and then God will like me. Lord, I pray in all the power of the spirit against that. Lord, but I also pray against licentiousness. I pray against those who would cheapen your grace and think it means there is no call to holiness think we can surrender to you as Savior, but not as Lord. Lord, I pray against both. Would you keep us on the narrow path, the path of grace that welcomes us unearned, yet teaches us to walk in your ways? Well, we need you for that. Would you help us? Lord, I pray for those in the room who are tired. I pray for those in the room who are weary, those in the room who hear this and immediately go to guilt and to shame and to burden and to sorrow over sin not yet put to death. Lord, I pray that they would find comfort in your spirit, comfort in your kindness, that they would remember the gospel good news that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for them in Christ Jesus. They would not hear this except as an invitation to greater delight in you. Well, we need you for all that. Pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.